Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. I want to say good morning to all of you watching and listening online. I also want to say good morning to all of you at our North site this morning. Glad that you're with us. And welcome to week two in our Easter series, as you just saw, called Smoke and Mirrors. Let's once again dive in and ask the needed questions surrounding the life, the death, and the supposed physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what we are wrestling with as people who are seekers, we who are skeptics, we who are brand new believers, we who have been Christians for years or decades. Is the physical resurrection of Jesus the greatest misunderstanding in history? Is this the worst form of broken telephone ever played in the human family? Is this wishful thinking or worse? Is this outright conspiracy? Is this just cliche? Is this just for people who cannot handle the rigors of life and need a crutch to sort of believe in something beyond the moment? And as we were wrestling last week and this week and this coming week, is there proof for anything in this story? Again, let me begin where I did last week. We need to begin with a common understanding of faith. So many people, when they hear that word, insert so many ideas, and yet in the vast majority of people in our culture, when they hear faith, they think about a blind leap into the dark. But that is not the definition of faith. Faith at its center and at its core is informed trust, not a leap into nothingness. It is informed trust, that is, that it is a relationship or an encounter that is based in fact and also relationship. This is critical as we keep going and discussing what we are dealing with today. See, let me say this again. Facts can take you forward to a certain place, but then you must also have an encounter. Knowledge, capital K knowledge that makes up capital R reality, which we all live in, is made up of encounter and also facts. They together build the experience that we all have. It was our communications director, Joanna Lafleur. She was speaking to some of our young adults, and she was speaking about the role of social media in our culture, which now the vast majority of us sitting here and watching online use. One of my favorite apps is Instagram. Anyone else an Instagrammer out there at all? Yeah, okay. And she was talking about Instagram as an experience, and she said, we live in such an interesting world now where you can actually follow someone and never meet them. You can be in their house, you can be in their bathroom, you can be in their bedroom, you can see what meal they eat three times a day. You know what I'm talking about? You can see where they go to vacation. You can go on vacation with them and you've never met them. But the point is this, when you suddenly, if you had the opportunity to meet this person, you weren't stalking them, but you went to actually go meet them, and you suddenly were sitting in the kitchen that you'd saw on Instagram and you sat down and had a coffee with them and you interacted with them, you move from informed, that is factual understanding that they exist and they have a kitchen and they eat Swiss chalet or whatever, and then you meet them and you sit with them and you interact with them and you encounter them. That is what faith is. Faith is information, faith is historicity, faith is fact, but it also demands encounter. That's why we say informed trust, because trust is a relational word. So many years ago, a famed author, many of us know at least by name, in his little work, A Confession, wrote an honest, unprotected, un- unprotected heart-wrenching question. 
His name was Leo Tolstoy, and he said these words so long ago now. My question, which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every single human being. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. And it was this. What will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why should I wish for anything? Why should I do anything? He said it could also simply be said like this. Is there any meaning in my life that death, which is coming for me, will not destroy? See, this is actually the real question we are wrestling with in the middle of this Easter series, in the middle of this series called Smoke and Mirrors. See, as I shared last week, if Jesus Christ lived, and he didn't just live, but he died, and didn't just die, but he physically rose from the dead, which is the center claim of Christianity, then atheism is fundamentally moved to the side. The universe is not closed. We are not just stardust. Something else is happening, and someone else is intervening. If Jesus rose from the dead, agnosticism is resolved permanently. If Jesus physically rose from the dead, every single philosophy and religion that has ever been in existence or is involved at this moment would have to reevaluate its core tenets. If Jesus physically rose from the dead, death now is permanently answered because we actually know what lies beyond the grave because someone went there, came back, and now can inform us of what is in the great unknown. If Jesus rose from the dead, the human family might not now need to ask who God is, what is he like, and is he even involved? If Jesus physically rose from the dead, then there is a possibility that we, no matter who we are or no matter our backgrounds, might be able to meet God personally. If Jesus rose from the dead, there might be purpose in our lives more than what you can buy or acquire or the love of money, more than sexual experience, more than education, more than power, more than relationships, even more than being moral or religious to appease a deity out there that may or may not be looking but if Jesus rose from the dead physically, the real heart of what we get to is this, that the coffin that we do not like thinking about in this place, the box that you will be laid in and I will too, or the cremation fire that will lick your skin, it might not have the final say. See, this again brings us to the foundation and the core and the epicenter of the Christian faith, the belief that Jesus Christ lived and died and physically rose from the dead. See, the physical resurrection of Jesus in finality answers Leo Tolstoy's suicidal moment. It answers every single question that is longing in the human heart, but all of that is a very significant if. Now, this week is built on last week. If you weren't here, please go back and listen to the podcast. Last week, we looked at history, and we begin to ask and begin to answer questions like, what is the difference between natural science and the science of history? And can history be accessible? And what are the rules of accessing history? And using those criteria, can we know if Jesus existed or the Bible or the Gospels can be trusted as historical documents? Where are there others that, found, that are found outside of the Bible that verified and can collaborate what we find in the Bible? Was there any reputable leader or historian that said, yes, actually all those things found in Scripture did take place? I said last week, or one better, were there people who were not Christians that said, yes, Jesus was around, he was killed on a cross, he was buried, and maybe even rose from the dead? We begin also to wrestle through the historical reality that Jesus' deepest critics, 
Some of the closest people to him, such as his half-brother James, who grew up with him his whole life, who did not believe in him because he thought he was demon-possessed or lunatic or mentally ill. And then a man named Saul who was outright against Christians, jailing Christians, attacking Christians, killing Christians. Suddenly these two men, historically reliably known people, suddenly say they physically encountered a physically risen Jesus and turned from deep skepticism, jadedness, and hatred to becoming some of his greatest followers. And we ask the question like, how do we wrestle this through? Well, today we're going to go in a different direction. Today, we're going to look at some of the biggest theories surrounding the death and empty tomb of Jesus. See, some of you this morning are saying, sure, John, okay, I'll give this to you. I believe Jesus as a historical person was around. I might even accept he did some pretty crazy things. I'll even admit he died, and maybe I will even admit this morning that there's something about his empty tomb feud from history, but it is not empty because Jesus physically rose from the dead. Something else took place that describes that supposed moment. Now, if you go on the internet, because everything online is right, right? (laughs) You'll read the idea that physical resurrection, the idea, the philosophy, the religious inclination towards that belief, 2,000 years ago was everywhere. All sorts of religions taught physical resurrection. And this claim that Jesus was risen from the dead was just Christians buying and adapting and using a religious idea or myth that was everywhere and just using it to their own advantage to propagate their new idea. Theory one, belief that the resurrection was everywhere and most people believed in it. Not even close. Read the scholars, read the historians, read the religious experts of the time. When Christians started to claim that Jesus physically rose from the dead, it was absolutely, undeniably, unprecedented, period. Pagans, and I mean that in the religious sense, did not believe in physical resurrection at all. Greek and Roman thinking and their myth is not full of physical resurrection ideas, beliefs, or accounts. Not in any way. In the most recent and largest study on pagan thinking during the time of Jesus, just before and just after, and connecting it to the claim of physical resurrection, N.T. Wright in his book, The Resurrection and the Son of God, concluded this as a historian first and a theologian second. Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was already known to be false, a lie, wrong. Many believed the dead were non-existent, and outside of the Jewish faith, Judaism, nobody, watch this, nobody believed in physical resurrection. Oh yes, people maybe believed in the afterlife, or they believed in Hades or bliss, others believed in non-existence, but here's what they all united around as pagan thinkers. There was no coming back after you were put in the ground. For the most, for most people living in that time, the golden age of Greek and Roman thinking spanning over millennia believed that the physical side, please listen, of us, our bodies, was bad or a prison or temporary. And the good thing within the human condition was the spiritual side in us, what they called the soul, the psyche, or the spirit. The vast majority of people believe that death was liberation. So why in the world would you want physical resurrection when you actually believe the only good part of you was your spiritual side anyways? 
clearly stated those that lived in the Roman Empire and beyond did not teach, did not hope in, did not believe, and did not even want physical resurrection from the dead. Think about it if you've ever read your Bible. Dr. Luke, you may know him. He wrote the book of Luke and Acts, a medical doctor who went and interviewed all the original people to write his history of the church. And then he follows a man named Paul, who we just referenced. He, in Acts 17, goes to the center with Paul at the heart of philosophy and pagan religious thinking in his day. It's a place called Mars Hill. I've been there. If you go to Athens today, you can go to the Acropolis. And right across the Acropolis, there's this bald sort of hill. And that is Mars Hill. That is the place where the greatest thinkers and religious leaders and philosophers in the time of Paul would gather to debate the great ideas of the day. And Paul goes there and he begins to speak about the physical resurrection of the dead and Jesus' own story. And what was the response of all the great thinkers of that day gathered in that most holy intellectual place? Did they, when they heard about resurrection, go, oh, yes, resurrection. We all know about that. You're not new. You're just using an older myth and reinterpreting it so you get new ground with us. No, not even close. This is actually what they say in Acts 17.32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, mocked, laughed at Paul, and others said, we want to hear you on this subject once again. See, no one in that moment said, oh, that's an old idea that we all think about, know about, it's in our myths, not at all. They either mocked the idea as stupid and lunacy and, and childish, or they said we're interested because we have never heard this idea before. See, this gets to one of the biggest ideas floating out there in movies and on TV and in books. That Jesus' resurrection is just another religious story that sort of everyone held out there and adapted by Christians. It's just not true. Now, some of you are saying, well, okay, I'm pretty well read, John. You might be right about Greek and Roman thinking, but older faiths talk about resurrection. Older faiths in Christianity, what about Addis? Or what about the story of Marduk and Babylonian faith? And there's all these different ancient religions that talk about this dying and rising God. See, this is just an adaptation of something that's been around for generations. Well, yes, and actually, no. Have you actually read them? I'm sure you were all out reading Babylonian accounts this week. They never talk about resurrection physically from the dead. They are vague, they are incomplete, and unlike the physical resurrection of Jesus that we talked about in depth last week, they don't have any historical bias or account. Top Near Eastern scholars, after looking at the possibility of resurrection connections between old ancient faiths and the Christian faith, concluded that this is nothing more than a popular belief that the story of Jesus is an adaptation, and it is nothing but inference, surmise, guess, and conjecture. Well, people say, okay, well, John, maybe it didn't exist in pagan thinking. I thought it did. Or maybe you say, well, okay, not connected to religions that are thousands of years older or predating Christianity. But John, you can't, you can't deny what I've read on the internet about Egypt. Maybe the Romans and Greeks didn't believe in resurrection, but the Egyptians, they talk about resurrection, and they talk about physical resurrection, and that's where the Christians got their idea. You know, like Jesus was in Egypt for a few years, so maybe he hung out and got some ideas. Well, let's listen to one of the top scholars interact with that idea. 
He writes, you know, we can note that the ancient Egyptian cult of Osiris is the only account of a God who survived death that predates Christianity. According to one version of the story, and then he reminds us there are many that contradict each other, Osiris was killed by his brother. Wow, that's tough. Chopped into 14 pieces. That's scary. That's like a Netflix event. And scattered throughout Egypt. The goddess Isis came and collected and reassembled his parts and brought him back to life. How nice. Unfortunately, she was only able to find 13 of the 14 pieces. More, however, it is questionable whether Osiris was brought back to life on earth and seen like Jesus was seen by followers. If you read the accounts, Osiris was given the status of a god of the gloomy underworld. So the picture you get of Osiris is of a guy who does not have all his parts, who maintains a shadowy existence as the god of the mummies. Or as Chris Clayton, one scholar put it, Osiris' return to life was not physical resurrection, it's zombification, walking dead. That will help you understand. Further, the hero of the account, when you read them, isn't even Osiris. Sometimes it's Isis, the other times it's Horus, their son. This is far different than Jesus' resurrection accounts where he is fully alive and fully present and interacting with people and he is the glorious risen prince of peace who connects with people, not some gloomy underworld person who actually is missing parts and really is just a zombie. Well, you say, well, John, okay. That doesn't sound the same. Well, correct, it's not. Well, some people say, well... I've read some Roman stuff. I read it in university. What about the Roman gods who rose to death and then to life like Jupiter or or the story of Hercules or other people rose to heaven on the horse Pegasus? Well, this is why history matters so much when we interact with the Easter story. The first real account of a dying and rising God is Adonis, and that was written in 150 A.D., The first story in Roman myth about a god rising in any form, not physically, any form from the dead is written 120 years after the Jesus resurrection event. But let me say this again. This is so critical. Paganism did not know, did not believe, did not want personal resurrection. Their myths did not teach anything close to to it. Nor has any religion, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, yes, they have ideas of rising, but not like this at all. Some of you sitting in the audience, hands folded, listening very carefully to what I'm saying, you're saying, okay, but John, you just said to me that one group did believe. You just said to me that Jews believed in physical resurrection, and Jesus was a Jew, and all the original disciples were Jews, and all the original Christians were Jews. So claiming that Jesus physically rose from the dead would be accepted by everyone with no scrutiny in Jerusalem because that's where it all happened and they were all expecting it. So, you know, it's just a lie they all bought into. Well, again, not even close to being true. Yes, Jews are the only ones in history that believed that all people would be physically resurrected from the dead. But for the vast majority of Orthodox Jews that did believe in physical resurrection, there was a unanimous consent by scholars and everyday people that physical resurrection would happen at the end of time, all at once, in the age to come, to every single person who had ever existed. So when Jews in Jerusalem started preaching that only one person, 
Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead and the general resurrection had not happened yet and the world was still in pain and people were still in sin and death was still going on and the Romans hadn't been thrown out and Israel had not been restored, it violated thousands of years of Jewish theological understanding and presupposition. See, that is why, again, N.T. Wright, that most eminent British scholar, said this, that is why as a historian... I cannot explain to you the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Let me give you an illustration that may help. When I grew up, I was born in the Shua. That's Oshawa for American washers. Don't worry about it. When I was born in the Shua, I lived out here, but I actually moved to Ecuador. I grew up on a volcano. That was my childhood. Pretty sweet. Yeah, woo, woo. Okay, cool. Volcano, woo. All right. I grew up on a volcano. It was 10,000 feet above sea level. And the one interesting experience about living at 10,000 feet above sea level, you know, on a volcano is this. You have between 25 and 40% less oxygen than we do here. Some of you are like, that explains a lot, John. Yeah, thanks. Okay. So I grew up in my childhood, in, my, in those years, living on a volcano, actually in a large city, with 40% less oxygen. Now what we had to do in our home to light a fire is this. We would have to douse in our apartment the wood with kerosene. And when we would light the match, which took a, actually quite an amazing amount of time to light it because there's so little oxygen, finally when we lit the match, we'd put the fire in the kerosene, and this is what it'd do. Now, can you imagine doing that in your house in Durham? Soaking your wood with kerosene and lighting it. Your children would be on fire, no eyebrows left. Your house would be burning to the ground. You say, John, why are you saying this? Let me bring this home. There's no oxygen in the room at all for the idea of Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. There is no way a fire could have been started. Pagans did not expect it. Pagans did not want it. Jews had a theology that said it happened to everyone. And yet what is unbelievable and undeniable historically is this. It is the greatest fire that has ever been lit in human history. Two billion people next week are going to celebrate Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. And historians sit back and say there is no reasonable religious environmental explanation for why the Christian movement took off in the first place unless, of course, it is true. See, this is very significant when you walk through history because if there is no environment to take off, and it does, you have to ask why. You know, it's interesting. Another said the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for this truth. But the obvious question arises is what in the world would cause them to believe such an un-Jewish and outlandish thing? Luke Johnson, a New Testament scholar at Emory University, said some sort of powerful transformative experience is required to generate that sort of movement that earliest Christianity became. By the way, this is why history matters so much. Within 50 years on each side of the Jesus event, multiple leaders came forward in the place called Israel and claimed that they were the Messiah sent from God. They inspired revolutions. Hundreds or thousands of people followed them, and they all died. Jewish history is littered with so-called messiahs. But listen to what one historian says, thinking about the Easter event. In not one single case, when you read history, 
Do we hear the slightest mention of disappointed followers claiming that their hero and Messiah had been raised from the dead? See, they knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leaders had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves only had two options, give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply never an option unless, of course, he was. Can I remind all of us this morning, no matter who you are and where you're listening, that all the very first Christians were Jews or Jewish converts to Judaism? And if you know the Jewish faith at all, you will know that the very heart of their faith is this, O hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. If you read the Ten Commandments, the very first thing that God says, I am the God who has relationship with you, O Jewish people. I've saved you out of Egypt. And he says, the very first thing you may never do is worship any other God but me. The end of the Jewish faith is syncretism and compromise. If Jews start worshiping any other God, it violates their faith at their core. And yet, let me pose this question to you. Historicity only. Within three months of the Jesus event... And within two years, in Jerusalem itself, where the temple was resident, thousands upon thousands of Orthodox Jews are now worshiping Jesus. What do you do with that? It is either a total contradiction and collapse of the Jewish faith, or it is the fulfillment of it. Jesus' best friend, John, you may know him as St. John, writing in his gospel, John wrote these words about the encounter between Jesus and Thomas that brings this home. He says, Thomas was one of the twelve. That means that Thomas walked with Jesus for three years and saw him do those amazing things. But he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen Jesus. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands... And I put my finger where his nails were, and I put his hand, my hand into his side. I will not believe, period. Skepticism. Jade is like, this is it. No. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he turned to Thomas and said, Thomas, you put your fingers here. See my hands, reach out your hand, put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. And notice what Thomas says next, it's critical. My Lord, my master, my king, my rabbi, and my what? God, and my Yahweh. And then Jesus blesses him for believing and said, those who have not yet seen uh, actually will be be blessed more. Here's the critical thing we need to grapple with and understand. Here's the summary. Pagans did not believe in physical resurrection. No one in the Roman Empire was teaching this anywhere. Jews were the only ones expecting it, but they expected it at the end of time and it would happen to all people and all things would be made right immediately when the resurrection took place. And yet Christians, all Jews, within 20 years of the Jesus event, start preaching, writing public letters, and worshiping Jesus as God in flesh and claiming that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. There is no good, rational, historical explanation for how this fire began, but it did. Some of you are going, okay, John, you're pretty slick, but I don't buy it. I'm still a skeptic, and I still think it's all smoke and mirrors. I think it's a trick, it's a mistake, it's a lie. You know, it's Da Vinci Code, it's conspiracy. Fine. 
then let's take a few minutes this morning as we're grappling with this to talk about four of the biggest conspiratorial ideas out there that have been hawked for years. The first one is this. If it's not just a general resurrection idea, then he apparently died, but he didn't. Yes, I'll give you that Jesus lived, and I'll give you that Jesus died, and he did some crazy stuff. I'll even give you that he might have died on a cross. I mean, last week you proved that, but his tomb was empty because actually he walked out of it. See, he probably lived through this terrible experience, like he had a coma, and then he walked out of the tomb, and that's how we get an empty tomb. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. Have you ever studied and researched flogging and crucifixion Roman style? Let me not even touch the crucifixion event. Dave's going to do that on Good Friday. I just want to talk to you for a few seconds about flogging. And let me just walk through what one medical historian summarizes a person went through in the act of flogging. And remember, we found out last week, not only Christian sources, but multiple non-Christian sources attest to the existence of Jesus, the torture of Jesus, and his death by cross. One person wrote, you know, the injuries sustained during scourging were extensive. Blows to the upper back and rib area would cause rib uh, fractures immediately. Severe bruising in the lungs, bleeding into the chest cavity, and partial or complete lung collapse happened every single time. As much as 125 milliliters of blood would be lost. The victim, as he was being whipped, would periodically vomit, experience tremors, seizures, and have bouts of fainting. Now, if you know about flogging, you also know the cat of nine tails at the end of them had pieces of bone, glass, or metal that shredded the person's back. Now, here's what you need to understand. When you see online or people say, well, Jesus survived not only that, but he survived the crucifixion event, you're saying that he was able to deal with this by himself. John Stott, that great Anglican thinker so long ago, responding to this claim, said that after the rigors and the pain of a trial, multiple trials, and personal mockery that he went through, and then the flogging I just described, and then crucifixion, That Jesus could survive 36 hours in a stone tomb with no warmth or food or medical care. And then he could rally sufficiently to perform the superhuman feat of shifting a 2,000-pound boulder, which secured the mouth of the tomb without disturbing the Roman guards. We'll get to them in a minute. That then, weak, sick, and hungry, he could appear to the disciples in such a way to give them the the impression he had vanquished death, And then he could live somewhere in hiding for 40 days, making occasional surprise appearances and finally disappearing without explanation. Such naivety is more incredible than Thomas's own unbelief. This idea that Jesus just made it, it's just not true. There's no authority to that at all. Either he's dead or he's alive, but there's no middle ground on this one. And then, of course, some of us, who know the scriptures and actually know Jewish history, also understand what happened when a Jew died. When Jews actually died, they wrapped their bodies from their armpits to their ankles in strips of linen a foot wide, and they used 75 to 100 pounds of glue and spices in the mixture to harden it so the person actually, of course, wouldn't decompose so quickly. The book of John tells us that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea already wrapped the body in linens with 70 pounds, 75 pounds of spices, and the women who are about to come on Easter morning don't even know they've done that yet. 
See, for him to get out of the tomb, he would have to unwrap himself and the glue and do the rest of it. It takes more faith in that, I'd say, than to believe in physical resurrection. Well, theory three, it's one of the most common, well, someone just stole the body. Or even worse, it's conspiracy. The disciples, they stole the body to prove their movement as true. It's an act of desperation. You know, this has been talked about since the very beginning. The book of Matthew, again written within 30 years of the Jesus event, or 40 years, says these words, Matthew 27, 62, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees, they went to Pilate. Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people he's been raised from the dead. This last deception would be worse than the first one. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb (coughs) secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now this is very significant and this has been debated for 200 years after this event. The very first thing we have to wrestle with is the guard. There is one guard mentioned here, but if you read external sources on how guarding took place in Roman times, and yes, there's multiple cases about it, it says that guards were put in groups of four. One would always be on guard, the other three would be resting or sleeping, ready to be called forth as something sideways was going. Now here's what we have. We have at least one guard, maybe four, guarding the tomb. They are Roman soldiers. And the idea that a bunch of people who are depressed and deep fear for their own life suddenly come, overcome these guards is possible, but it's stretching it. Not only that, if you read uh, historical sources, you'll find out that the penalty for a Roman soldier sleeping on guard was death. And so the idea that all these Roman soldiers are just, you know, sleeping when they know that the penalty to their own life is death makes the story more incredible. But let's say, suppose the disciples did find a way around the soldier or soldiers, or they were sleeping or not there or out partying. Okay, let's see that. The next problem we have is the stone. How could they move a stone and not bring attention to themselves? The large stone commonly used in this place of the world by the rich was there, of course, to protect bodies from animals and robbers, etc. The average stone that was placed in front of a tomb like Jesus's would have been 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. It takes two grown men to move it. And it also says in the scriptures that the stone itself was not just there, and guards are not just there, but it says that the stone also was sealed. But let me ask you a question again, because we've gone through this historical journey. Why do it? Like I've already shared, the Jewish faith, formally and informally, did not believe at all in the idea that one person will rise from the dead. And since obviously it wasn't the end of time, people within weeks would have laughed the disciples out of the room, A, because the tomb would be empty, but B, because it violated the faith. It is an anti-Jewish idea. And the foundation of the Christian movement is Jesus was being called the Messiah and King of the Jews. Well, some of you say, well, maybe robbers got to the body. Well, the reason why robbers just happened to go that tomb that night, overcome the guards, steal a body is hard to imagine, but maybe. But it's interesting when you read again the biblical account in John 25, when you actually have what this author saw, he was present as an eyewitness. And it reads like this. It says, look, John bent over 
when they ran to the empty tomb and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. But Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Isn't that like Peter? Moved to the side, got to get in. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, and the cloth was lying in its place, separated from the linen. Why does this matter? Well, this is very significant because you have the eyewitness who was present writing this, and then you have Peter himself. Now, you see that word saw there in the text? He went and saw the body. It's not just a common word. It means to discern, investigate, and to consider. And the word he saw the linen lying there, the word there is where we get our word in English theater from. Here's what's happening in the original text. Peter goes into this tomb and he takes a long, good investigation look at this moment. The mystery is being probed. He does not believe this is true. He is wondering if this is fake. But here's what's so significant about this moment. If someone had stolen the body of Jesus, they would have taken everything, including the linens. Or if they just wanted Jesus' body, they would have unwrapped the linens and all the glue and thrown them about. But what this states is this, that, that when they came in, why Peter was so perplexed and why John was scared to walk in is when they looked at the linens, the linens had not been disturbed. The glue is still in the linens and the head face piece is laying in one place separated from the linens in the other place. The idea that robbers came and, and, and took the body, well, the clothing itself refutes the terror and the hurry and the uncare of robbers. Therefore, the body was not stolen by robbers. See, the empty tomb actually did happen some of you are like, John, you haven't proved that. Wait. Remember, Jesus was executed in Jerusalem. All his postmodern appearances happened in Jerusalem. The empty tomb itself is all in Jerusalem. All the original proclamations that Jesus rose from the dead happened in Jerusalem. If the enemies wanted to kill this movement outright, all they needed to do is exhume the body. Now, some say, well, John, he was so beat up so badly, it would be unrecognizable. Of course, that's not true. Producing anybody would have shut down the Christian movement within the first 30 days. And actually, new evidence has come forward that in the arid climate of Jerusalem, a corpse's hair, stature, and distinctive wounds would be identifiable up to 50 days after burial. See, the opponents of Jesus, and he had many the Roman authorities, the soldiers guarding the tomb, the religious leaders that thought that Jesus was going to undo Judaism at its core, never came forward and produced a body. The tomb has always been explained away. One scholar said, if your mother says that you're an honest person, we might have reason to believe her, but with lots of reservation because, you know, your mama loves you and she's biased. However, if someone who hates you admits you're an honest person, you have a stronger reason to believe that what is being asserted is true since potential bias isn't there. See, the empty tomb is attested not only by Christian sources. Jesus' enemies admitted it as well. Hence, we're not employing some argument from silence. Rather, to point to an occupied tomb, the early critics accused Jesus' disciples of stealing the body. 
And not just within the 30, 30 days or five years, for 200 years, every single Christian critic that was against the Christian faith admitted the tomb was empty, but accused them of stealing the body. But again, it's an anti-Jewish understanding. See, he says there would be no need for an attempt to account for a missing body if the body was still in the tomb. When a boy comes and tells his teacher his dog hate his homework, that is basically admission that the homework is unavailable for assessment. Likewise, the earliest Jewish claims reported regarding Jesus' resurrection was to accuse the disciples of stealing the body is an indirect admission that the body wasn't there for display. This is the only this is the only theory offered by Jesus' enemies to understand the empty tomb. This is critical. The tomb was empty. Well, some people say, okay, fine, I'll even give you that. John, they just went to the wrong tomb. Siri, where's Jesus' tomb? And Siri took us to the wrong place, right? This is, this is believed by many. Men were driving the car, not women, so they, of course, ended up in the wrong place. Well, no, actually, it's all women who go there originally. So... Let's just listen to the account. The first day of the week, early in the morning, women took spices they'd prepare, and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They have a very unique encounter. Verse 9, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and the others. And it was Mary Magdalene, it was Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and others with them who told the apostles, watch this, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like what? Nonsense. Why? Because personal resurrection is not a private event. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Here's what another person wrote. No source has ever supported the wrong tomb theory in history. If the women and the disciples had gone to the wrong tomb, all the Roman and Jewish authorities had to do is actually go to the right tomb, exhume the body, publicly display it, and clear up the misunderstanding. Yet not one single critic is recorded to have even thought of this explanation for the resurrection during the first two centuries of Christianity. The evidence suggests that the tomb's location was absolutely known. And this is critical because Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus in his own tomb. If the burial by Joseph was an invention, then we might expect ancient critics or even within the scriptures to state that Joseph stood up and denied the version of that story. Or critics could have actually denied the existence of the character Joseph of Arimathea since supposedly he was part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body at the time of Jesus, therefore a very known public figure. Instead of questioning the place of the burial or actually the people themselves, the group resorted, resorted to claiming the disciples stole the body. Think about it. All the women and Peter and John all went to the wrong tomb. Not so much. But remember something even more important than this. Remember that James, we learned this last week, his half-brother, Saul, who was murdering Christians, and the women, and Peter, and John, and everyone else, did not believe the movement of Christianity, did not believe that Jesus had been risen from the dead because the tomb was empty. The empty tomb was only the door that opened the conversation. Every single one of them, plus 500 other witnesses, claim it was not the empty tomb that convinced them. They actually claimed they saw Jesus, ate with Jesus, touched Jesus, walked with Jesus, got forgiven by Jesus, and then they turned into bold 
preachers of his death and resurrection. Remember again, Thomas did not believe. James thought his brother was crazy, mentally ill, or demon-possessed. And Paul, known as Saul, thought that this was undoing the whole Jewish faith. Yet all of them from their backgrounds suddenly believe, not just because of the empty tomb, but because they touched him. Well, some people say, well, if history isn't on our side, then let's just say it was a mass hallucination. It's 1965, man, shrooms and LSD, like we all saw them, wow. Well, first of all, I'm not sure who the drug dealer was in, you know, Jerusalem at that time. Other people say, well, it wasn't religious drugs or drugs itself, it was grief. Grief produced such a hallucination in so many people that they all saw the same thing. John Lennox, responding to this, I love it, said, you know, psychological medicine in itself is a witness against this explanation, Matthew was a hard-headed, shrewd tax collector. Peter and others were tough fishermen. Thomas, a born skeptic. Saul, fill in the blanks. They're not the sort of people normally associates with susceptibility to hallucination. Again, hallucinations tend to be of expected events. Listen to this, please. But none of the disciples ever expected to meet Jesus again. That is critical. No one ever expected Jesus to come back from the dead, not even his closest followers. The women go to the tomb with spices. They never expect to see him again. Hallucinations usually occur over a relatively long period, increasing or decreasing, but the appearances of Jesus happen frequently, 40 days, then stop. Hallucinations, more, however, do not occur to groups, and yet Paul says 500 people had the same exact hallucination at once. And in any case, the hallucination theory are severely limited because they only explain the appearances. They do not account for the empty tomb. And no matter how many hallucinations the disciples had, they could never preach about the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem if the nearby tomb had not been empty. Well, some of you are saying, well, John, well done. But honestly, it's just a lie. This is a lie that got out of hand and never should have taken off. The authors just made this up. And I'm not sure why they did it, but they did it, and it's all an invention. You know, it was interesting. I was online a few weeks ago, and I ran into a blog post by a guy named Bernard Howard. And he imagined uh, Peter, James, and John, no, sorry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in a bar having a round of drinks together. Well, if it was a Baptist, it'd be Coke, but you know what I mean. And they gathered together, and he imagines the conversation about building the deception. I just want to read it to you. Luke says, hey, boys, let's have another round of drinks. I've got an idea I want to run past all of you. John says, sure, what's on your mind, Luke? Luke says, you've probably heard about the Nazarene named Jesus who was crucified yesterday. I think he could be perfect for our candidate that we've been looking for for the fake Messiah project. Mark says, well, there's one tiny problem. Um, He's dead. Luke says, yes, but that's perfect. That means we get to control the narrative and the story. We're going to be in charge of his reputation. Matthew says, but... Who's going to follow a Ted Messiah? Luke says, nobody's going to do that. So we're going to begin with a resurrection myth. We're going to hire some thugs to fight off the soldiers guarding his tombs. So first of all, we can get rid of the corpse. John says, but a missing corpse isn't the same as resurrection. Luke says, John, you're right. We're going to actually have to persuade every single one of Jesus's friends to spend the next 30 years telling everyone that Jesus has risen from the dead, even if sticking to the story means they're going to be in prison, their family will be killed, or they're going to be killed. Mark says, okay, no problem. Then what? Luke says, well, to make the conspiracy really credible, we're going to need a lot of precise details. So we're going to invent stories where Jesus interacts with people in specific locations. Matthew says, um, Luke, won't people just disprove the stories by visiting those places and asking around? 
Come on, Matthew, there's no, that people won't do that. We're going to invent a story, for example, of a synagogue ruler's terminally ill daughter being healed. We're going to give the synagogue ruler a name. We're going to put it all in a particular place. And no one, absolutely no one, not even the people living in that place are even going to check the story. Mark says, it sounds like we're on real safe ground there. Good idea, Luke. But if we want people to follow Jesus, we're going to need a message, like a really important message. I mean, people have been waiting for the Messiah for centuries. He's got to be, you know, worth listening to when he finally appears. John says, no problem, boys. It's all good. I'm going to think up some really deep quotes to give him. Luke says, thanks, John. Mark's right. You need to put some profound wisdom on Jesus' lips that theological scholars can happily study for their entire careers. John says, no problem. I can do that. Got that in the bag. Luke says, okay, guys, it's going to take us a while to put our own documents together. So here's what we need to do. We need to get communities of people worshiping Jesus in the meantime. So when our books come out, they're going to have an unbelievably good reception. Mark says, I know the guy for us. His name's Saul. I think he could help us with that. Luke says, you don't mean Saul the Pharisee. I, I can't imagine him getting involved in our little conspiracy. Mark says, trust me, man. He's so our guy. I see him leaving everything he's been trained to do, planting congregations of Jesus worshipers for the next 30 years across the Roman Empire, whatever costs him personally, I mean, beatings and shipwrecks and even his life. Matthew says, awesome. But Luke, can you remind me again, what's the point of all of this? I mean, what do we get out of this great conspiracy? Luke says, come on, Matt. It's going to be so much fun. We're going to watch people be brutally murdered. And we're going to know that we've deceived them by our dishonest fiction. We're even all going to die. What's not to like about that? John says, I agree with Luke. This is definitely worth years of effort on our part. You can count me in. Mark says, I'm in too. Matthew says, hmm, maybe. But it's a deal breaker for me. Well, what's your deal breaker? Well, my name has to come first in the promotional literature and then I'm in. Luke says, deal, let's go to work. See, here's what we need to wrestle with. The historicity of the Christian faith and the historicity of this event is undeniable. And the theories that are promoted out there by both scholar and lay people are extremely weak when it comes to historical criteria. You cannot avoid this conversation because the facts move you in a direction, and so do the personal stories and the personal encounters, trusts, and facts informed, continually bringing people to the same place. So many of you are skeptics and seekers here today, and we're so glad you're here. And here's what I want to simply say to you. I want to give you the same challenge I did last week. I want, first of all, for you to do your due diligence I want you to go home this week and read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. See, if Jesus doesn't write, isn't raised from the dead, this, don't worry about it. But if there is a possibility at all that he is in any way, shape, or form, then everything that the human condition is asked and sings about and runs poems about and wants and desires is answered. It is worth your seven days of reading the eye testimony, eyewitness testimonies and the conversations between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's my challenge to you. I want you to do something that will violate much of your comfort and maybe even your worldview. I want you to sit on your bed. I said this last week. I want you to sit on your bed and I want you not in your mind. I want you out loud. Some of you are like, I'm an atheist. doesn't matter. Your unbelief doesn't make him not exist. Speak to him out loud and say to him, Jesus, if you're alive and this is not smoke and mirrors, but this is real, you have to show up and do something in me that I cannot do because I cannot believe by myself. See, some of you are Thomas. I will not believe unless. 
Others of you are Saul. I hate Christians and I hate Jesus. I will not. Others of you are, you know, are James. I've grown up with Christians my whole life. I'm so sick of this family unless. Others of you are, are Peter. You're wondering and you're looking. Others of you are like the women. You don't even expect it to be. It's too good to be true. You're hoping, but it's too good. But here's the amazing thing. Every character I just said to you, all of them encountered Jesus, and Jesus will encounter you if you want him to. I challenge you as seekers and skeptics, take the time to do this. And as believers, again, we've confessed this, and this is a good verse for all of us. If you, believe with, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart God has raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. This is the great truth that we have as a movement. Jesus is not somewhere. Jesus' body is not rotting in some tomb. Jesus is alive. He's alive and he's made a profound difference in hundreds of our lives, thousands of our lives. And we're here just again to be built up in our faith and understand that all the things that are coming against our holy faith, though deeply worth considering, do not hold merit because Jesus truly has overcome all things. Can you say amen to that this morning? So would you just stand with me, please, you in North Durham, wherever you are listening or watching online? And can we just pray and prepare to respond? Lord, again, so many questions, so many things. And so first of all, again, for skeptics and seekers, and even some among us who have the title Christian, but we know we're not Christians. We pray you'd come very close and begin to answer questions and reveal yourself and bring people to eternal life and hope and answer the questions in our hearts. And for us who are Christians for days or months or years, we just want to say this again. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. And thank you, Jesus, you actually are alive. And thank you, Jesus, that we have forgiveness and hope. And as you were raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead too. So we're so deeply thankful for this moment. All glory to God the Father. All glory to God the Son. All glory to God the Holy Spirit, our Savior, our God, our friend, our master, our counselor, our living one who's made us right and will ever give us eternal life. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.